0: Hello everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of The Value Guys. I am a 30-year Wall Street veteran who's had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide you with my candid views on a handful of stocks out of this week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV. You've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air So I disguise my voice and they'll never know. This week, I look at the June 4th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. Um, But before I get to that, a couple of important caveats. This show is for entertainment purposes only. It's not a guarantee. Secondly, I may have meaningful conflicts of interest, including uh, my own interests, in mind at the expense of yours. So that's pretty critical to let you know, according to my attorney. Third, and this is my own caveat, uh, I may be completely uninformed. I'm just reading Value Line after work and I'm sleepy. So who knows? It's just, you know, it's a hobbyist after work hanging out. And fourth, um, I'm. Maybe heavily drinking, and tonight I was, uh, and I'll uh, get into that in a minute. Um, see all my caveats and photos and bios and things like that at the website www.thevalueguys.com. Uh, for you, new listeners, if there are any at this point, um, here's the format of the show I'm going to do a little rant that I've named It Would Help My Portfolio If, because on this show, it's all about the portfolio. You know, I pick a couple stocks every week um, in order to have a big portfolio. You know, maybe 50 stocks, 70 stocks. That's kind of what the sweet spot is of what institutional clients want in small-cap value land or any any space. And so, um, you know, I... I pick a couple stocks every week. See all my favorites at www.TheValueGuys.com. There's a button on the site, Val's Best Ideas, and if you click on that, it takes you to a, um, well, it looks like a site, but it's a file that I save. That's in Yahoo Finance, a portfolio of stocks, when I recommended them, the stock price at purchase, what it's worth now, the returns, and there's a lot of good ideas in there, Um, and particularly now with the market down, you know there's a lot of great cash flow yield type of ideas in there, good cash flow businesses with good balance sheets that uh you know are impaired uh or have been and maybe are again um this week's uh it would help my portfolio if segment of the show is uh again not that well thought out. I'm just home late you know i actually got to see an old friend tonight uh he invited me to a a conference and so i went and uh you know it was good to see him you know i learned a little bit about uh, uh reits and uh you know who knows maybe they're a good idea when they come up again i may do them um because uh you know there's probably some upside in that area as um needs for space start to kick up and with g d p growth and such uh you know there will be a lag of course it's tied to employment, but you know it's coming, and so maybe a time for that that was not in this week's issue but anyway uh so we had a couple of drinks it was all a bunch of investors there talking about a bunch of stuff and um You know, these are all professionals. They work at big firms, you know. Um, And so do they know what's going on? No, but I'll tell you what they think in general. The consensus seems to be, and this would explain why the stock market has been going down. You know, it's not going down like it goes down when the banks say they won't loan any more money. That's more of a plummet. And it feels a little different. This is more like uh, a decline, I'd say. And you know, you're somewhat puzzled, but you're not that much puzzled because what's happening is there's a declining confidence in uh, you know the, the the strength of the recovery. Uh, you know, there's a lot of noise about companies pushing income into this year to avoid higher taxes next year, and there could be some of that, but. Clearly, the expiration of um the tax breaks, uh, but I don't want to even call them that look, I'm in their language the uh expiration of uh rules that allowed capitalists to keep more of their income is coming, and that's gonna to lead to you know an incentive to uh push income into this year, and so we may be getting some phony readings on earnings growth. That's one view, another view of course is the um Weakness in Europe, which is you know real um, is uh is going to lead to some uh, potential double dipping in Europe, which could spill over here, so you have a market that starts to think about a double dip, and there's some fear associated with that um, understandably so you know I don't have any issue with that, and what's happened is a lot of good companies have retraced a bit, you know they're not back to the lows of last year by any means but you know, there are some pretty good deals, and so I'd say I do have three pretty good ideas this week, um, although I haven't done as much work as I'd uh, hoped to, um, but my rant, I'm getting off off base, here's my rant, and I i don't think this is all that well thought out, but, um, you know, uh, but basically, and I talked about this last week, um We've got a bunch of politicians who are reading the same things we're all reading about the fear of a double dip and the fear of this and the fear of that. Um, Please, go out there, do the right thing on tax rates, and let's reduce the risk of a double dip. um, And that would help my portfolio. Um, The the other thing I'd say is that... um, you know this this oil spill and we were talking about it because at the table it was like how are you going to play this and and uh, obviously a whole bunch of fear has come into this space with regard to uh the regulatory environment for drilling in in deep water and so uh stocks have really taken a hit and yet when you look at uh, and, and there's a lot of people that want to accelerate the move to alternative fuels. Okay, look, who isn't in favor of that? Sometimes the profit motive itself, like if you invent a new fuel, uh, you will get rich. You know, that's a pretty good incentive for people, and yet, um, um there are those in government that feel that there could be different sorts of incentives, uh, for example. Um, subsidy, you know, someone's good idea gets subsidized. And there's a lot of examples of that, things that never actually become economically viable that the government invests in. But, um, right now we again have people saying let's accelerate, um, non-fossil fuels. Well, I pulled some data up today on, uh, miles driven and there's monthly data on this in the, uh, uh in the in the commerce department and you can also pull up data on uh, air miles flown uh, as well and these things are highly correlated to fossil fuel use in fact between those two um miles driven commercial particularly because that's the lion's share of gasoline and diesel use is commercial transportation over road and then airlines you know, uh, passenger cars, not a big deal, and trains. Again, my portfolio, I've talked about on the show, it's got some bias toward increasing market share in rail because the economies scale the efficiency of fuel use and labor, et cetera. Um, and containerization has really helped the labor efficiency of sort of the throughput uh, there. So that's a good theme. But um, right now we've got Obviously a need for more fossil fuels because miles driven are going up and miles flown are going up. And yet we've got this confusion about what we're going to do as a result of this spill. And so all the politicians seem to be focused on the spill at the moment. And yet I'm just, you know, in fact, we're talking about the potential impact on the economy. I'm just doing the math. I mean, if this cleanup even costs $2 billion, we've got a $14 trillion economy. Uh, 3% growth would be $700 uh, billion. So a couple billion, it's a rounding error in GDP growth. So that's a phony discussion. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of talk about making BP pay and all that. I mean... Terrific, but this isn't going to help the economy. These numbers are just all too small. So it would help my portfolio if the people in charge would focus their energies on those areas where they could have the biggest positive impact. And right now that might be tax rates. It might be hiring the right scientists to invent fusion that would be really helpful, because that actually could take on some of the workload of generating electricity and fuels for transportation, which wind and solar have very little chance of actually doing so um, there's a I guess there's a rant in there somewhere it's mainly about I wish politicians would spend more time on things that matter more than on things that don't matter, and uh, that would help my portfolio and again not well thought out okay Uh, and I am a little sleepy tonight and I apologize Uh, I've done a little less work here than I was hoping to but I've got three you know decent ideas I've done these before just as a side note if you pull in our uh, XML code into Internet Explorer or Excel you get all our shows laid out in a format where you can look them up by ticker and uh, and so that's sometimes helpful if you want to go and hear a stock we're not talking about right now it's pr- it's likely we've talked about it over the last 4 or 5 years i mean there's hundreds of stocks so the web address of this file is www.thevalueguys.com/thevalueguys.xml there's also a button for it on our homepage, the value guys dot com. If you pull that file into Internet Explorer, um, there's a search box by Ticker and then the shows pop up, which is nice. Or if you pull that file into Microsoft Excel, it lines up in a way where you can sort on Ticker and uh, work it that way. So um I have actually done a couple of these before, and who knows, maybe I'm just repeating myself, um, but I just thought I'd mention it. First up this week, and these are all from the June 4th issue of the Value Line Investment Survey. I am am still a little bit behind, I just can't catch up since my move, so whatever. Um, And also this week, I'm not giving page numbers. For you uh, long-time listeners, as you know, I've abandoned the page numbers because uh, I pull this off the Internet. They're not page numbered, unlike in the physical copy where each sheet has a page number. These don't have a page number, and I did a survey a few weeks ago. No one cares, so I don't know. For me, it's nostalgia, you know, when I got in the business. I page through Value Line every week, and it's a good discipline. That's at the library. It was in my company library. And there were page numbers. And little sections would come in every week with page numbers. So, whatever. Um, it's a vestige, you know. First up this week uh, Dun Bradstreet, ticker DNB. Um, what do I like about it? Well, the first thing I'm attracted to is it's a discount valuation for a great brand, Dun Bradstreet. I mean, who hasn't heard of that? I think I've mentioned this on the show, but a a friend of mine in the advertising business says a great brand that's known worldwide, that's a billion dollars of value right there. Or that's the replacement cost or the creation cost of a worldwide brand. So Dun & bread, you've got that. Um, And then I look at their uh, their operating margins for some sign of something proprietary, and they're putting up margins in the high 20s and 30s. So on a markup basis, if uh, they're doing a 31% operating margin, I know that 69% are their total costs, I mean pre-tax. And so the 31 over the 69, what's that? It's, it's nearly 50% in terms of the markup over the costs. Well, if that gap is not being competed away, then you may be onto to something. Um, now, I look at their returns on capital. And because this company's running negative equity, and that negative equity looks like I can't right quite tell, but back in o five and o six, the equity goes from a modest positive to negative at the same time that the share count goes down seven million, and the stock was valued at sixty eight dollars a share, so seven times sixty eight is four hundred million this thing goes down guess what four hundred and something million so that was it they bought a bunch of stock obviously at a big premium and they took it out of equity and they've had negative equity ever since so sometimes when I see a negative equity stock I think that probably demand itself is impaired there's all kinds of organizations that can't buy negative equity stocks it just doesn't meet the screens of the investment committee so if you don't have that kinda thing then it I think it's a benefit because eventually that'll lift. demand will come back and uh, you know if you draw your supply and demand curve increasing demand stable supply price goes up so it's one of those things where you know price is gonna go up for reasons that have very little to do with the fundamentals of the company it is the supply and demand of the stock itself and Ultimately, that's what creates price, not the numbers on this page. It's just all about supply and demand. And um, that's probably the biggest leap from academia into the stock market itself. Is um, And we got a window on this last year. What's something worth if no one in the room is willing to buy it? Well, you know, the government says zero in a mark-to-market environment, and that's why all the banks froze up because their capital, their required capital went to zero because no one was willing to step up and buy anything because of fear. And the market value then at that moment, because there's no market, was zero. So anyway, um, in this case, I think that you will have rising natural demand as a result of the equity turning positive. it's still minus 300 million for this year but at the current rate of earnings um they might just be a year or two away from turning positive equity which would be a little wind at your back um the stock has typically traded at higher multiples uh, on a pe basis than it trades right now it's 12.8 times earnings and like a lot of you know firms that sell what appear to be discretionary products, I'm sure a lot of D&B's business is related to intelligence on potential acquisition candidates or, uh, you know, um, candidates that might, you know, that might buy you. So a lot of just corporate intelligence, corporate research on one another. Uh, Their business is... um, you know it's it's pretty vague business information and related decision support services is what value line says I'm sure that's just coming right out of their 10k they're in 28 countries you know they've got a brand uh, that to me says we do quality business uh, valuation type work and so uh, you know it's it's kind of a service business in terms of uh, intellectual service with a high markup and and I was uh, gonna mention their return on capital but you know right now with their equity negative so at the end of 09 it was negative 700 million but their long-term debt is about a billion so if you do the math you get capital of about 200 million and Value Line puts NM for the return on capital but I can calculate it 200 million in capital And operating income of uh, 30% times a billion six, so 500 million, just going to rough it, 500 million on 200 million in capital. So that's a 250% return on capital, and I'm looking for 15 to 20%. So uh, that's pretty good you might say well where would that other capital go that doesn't seem right how can that be and you're right you're right about that it's not realistic Well, what happened is a bunch of people that put money in so let's say you think their normal return on capital might be 20 percent why is this adding up to two hundred and fifty percent well it's because eighty percent of the capital lost all their money and uh... you know that's how it goes. And so they're just gone. They lost it in a bad trade eight years ago or seven years ago. So it's one of those things where you just get in sort of cheap on a capital basis. Um, obviously, with negative equity and $700 million in debt, or I'm sorry, a billion in debt, they look highly levered. Um, because of course you're doing a calculation on the basis of book equity which is negative so you get a crazy number and then analysts don't even want to deal with that it's like I don't I can't calculate that well so what you know might you might do is you might look at the market cap 3.7 billion that's what the market thinks the value of the equity is why isn't that a good estimate I know the negative estimate is not right that the accountants are making because there's a running business and so there's positive equity. So I'm happy to take the cue from the market. I've got 3.7 billion in equity. The debt is uh a billion. So all of a sudden I've got a capital structure that's 25% or 20% debt to market equity and and that's fine for me. That's what probably matters more than book equity. Um and so that's a pretty good return on capital so I've got a high margin a high return on capital and a discount P.E. so again this isn't to quote somebody rocket surgery but um, you know that's uh, that least seems like a good deal certainly on a relative basis in a world where you know the average is the median or near the median if you know you're buying a, an above-average uh, return on capital for a below average valuation and uh, you're advantaging yourself relative to um, I can do the math on that I guess roughly but eighty percent of other companies won't be in that zone. Not that the stock still can't go down it obviously can't but in this case you've got a little wind at your back with um, you know some trends in outsourcing um, you know to smaller teams and outsourcing for um, intellectual input, M&A input, valuation input. It's typical now to go outside your company rather than have that type of stuff in-house um, and so they should benefit from that. And uh, and then they've got brand. So they also have economies of scale just in uh, making impressions on potential future customers and so they should naturally be gaining share uh, relative to smaller Competitors, these guys are putting up a billion aid in revenue, and that's uh you know I can't name a lot of other companies um in this space um, and so I like that what Bellon says is that uh you know they did have a slowdown in uh revenue in o nine of course, but they're going to be tied into g d p M&A acquisition activity etc when banks freeze up and industrial production plummets and people have to fear running out of cash and things like that then it's easy to put off the uh you know the 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 library department uh and the uh you know uh information department until another time and that apparently what what's happened makes perfect sense capital spending fell during that period as well And so, again, I don't see anything unusual. It doesn't seem like you could make the case very strongly that they've lost any market share. They just sort of seem to go along with with GDP, maybe a little higher than that. Their valuation uh, on an enterprise value to EBITDA basis, so enterprise value being the market value of the equity plus the debt, less the cash. It represents what we might have to pay in cash to own the rights to all the cash flow so that would be about 4.4 billion and the cash flow here is going to run about uh, you know I'm doing 32 percent on a billion eight for next year so I've called that um, roughly 600 million on 2011 earnings so that's seven and a half times roughly Uh, so the inverse of that, 13%, would represent our cash flow yield on that net capital that we had to invest to own the business. So 13%, that's pretty good relative to what you get at the bank. And then value line thinks they're going to grow 9%. So my total return might be a cash yield return plus the 9% growth in the value of the company uh, every year. Um, which nicely you know would would not be taxed. It would be an unrealized gain. Hopefully rolling into a better future where capital gains taxes uh since uh, you've already paid tax on that money that you've invested, you know, will be lower than they're apt to be next year. So anyway, Dun and Brad, DNB. Um total return looks like it's in low twenties. I like that. Next up, uh Moody's Corp, ticker MCO. And again, no page number. This is the part of the show where I might give the page number, but I'm not giving it this week. Um, Moody's, you've heard of it, and the reason you have is because, uh, you know, Congress has done inquiries into their hapless uh, skills at rating bonds because of the AAA bonds that collapsed. And, you know, Standard & Poor's was right in there. I don't mean to pick on them. But the point is, their reputation has been sullied, needless to say. And, um, you know, um, there was some fear that fewer bonds would get rated than, uh, you know, used to, although I think that hasn't really been borne out. And their revenues, again, after people thought they would plummet, have actually uh, begun to recover and may soon be at the levels that they were, um, at the peak in 07, in fact the estimate their second best year on record, $2.1 billion. Their margin, yeah, it's down, it's down, admittedly. It's down from 55% back in 06 to 44% now. That's an operating margin. So, you know, that's pain. They lost a quarter of their margin, or 20% of their margin, but they're doing a 44% operating margin. Again, that says proprietary. And I think what's at the core of this is every bond, even under, even after all these mishaps, every bond feels it needs to be rated. And it's simply a matter of if you don't have a rating, you're going to be less attractive than all the bonds that do have a rating. Because even if you have your own analysts, and I guess the argument is certainly do your own work. That's been you know made more obvious than ever before. But, yeah, do your own work. So let's say we're going to do our own work. Okay. But then would you rather buy the bond where someone else has also done work or where no one else has done work? And so at this point, even if the rating agencies do a bad job, and even if you know they're going to do a bad job, that's why you're doing your work but you're still gonna want a second opinion that seems to be what's happening anyway you know I I who knows uh, if that's gonna continue but the other thing that's happening is there's some effort afoot in Congress to hold these guys accountable and then super regulate them by making them in effect pieces of the regulatory apparatus of the government so whether they'd be who knows part of the <clears throat> SEC or the Treasury Department or whatever but that may have people spooked obviously it should but then I'd say well wait a minute if they're part of the government then the government's gonna make you know make it required that they're better analysts so you'll get laws that require them to be better But then you'll require people to use them. So it'll actually help ensure their revenue stream. And then market shares will free up, or freeze up, because, you know, the government is going to require people to use this particular agency, the rating agency, so they already have it in their name even, to rate bonds. And utilities trade at 20 times earnings, not 11 because you've taken away the risk of bankruptcy, really, and you've insured price increases with inflation and all those kinds of things that go along with being part of the government. So um, I think the fear here of them becoming a government entity are overblown simply because it would be worth more in that situation. And uh, as an ongoing entity without government involvement, they're going along just fine. Their margin is terrific, and... uh, you know, their their cash flow yield in terms of enterprise value to EBITDA, the inverse of that, EBITDA or enterprise value, is 16% right now. So their ability to, you know, sort of continue at this pace, when I look through their income, I mean, they never even got close to losing money. So they're a real solid earner. The business does not appear to be going away. By any means, they're earning extraordinary margins. And while Value Line doesn't want to calculate their return on capital, we've talked about it. It's 250%. And the equity is about to turn positive, which will increase demand for the stock or it certainly increase the supply of potential demand, which in itself should help the stock. So I'm going to get a 16% cash yield on top of that. Value line thinks they can grow earnings at 5%. Okay, I'll give you that. Maybe it's higher. I don't know. Um, But even at 5%, that gives us a 21% total return. Moody's Corp, ticker MCO. And then finally, a stock I have talked about in the past, SAIC Inc., which stands for uh, Science Applications International Corporation. It's a scientific engineering and technology applications company. And what they do is they provide a bunch of scientific engineering and systems integration and technical services to various branches of the U.S. military. I'm just reading Value Line. Agencies of the U.S. Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and other government civil agencies, state and local government agencies, foreign governments, and customers in selected commercial markets. So, um you know, they're basically going to be tied into government spending, and government spending grows at least at GDP. Uh, I will say for 80 years it's been growing faster than that, but that can't continue, so that may flatten out, but it's pretty solid. And these guys are putting up mid-teens returns on a a capital and just a very solid 8% operating margin. So, what that tells me is they've got really good relationships, so they're going to get their share of government work, and it must be cost plus. That's why the operating margin is so stable, because uh, it's just a sort of people do work, you count how much it is in hours, they get an hourly wage, there's some overhead, and you mark that up by, uh, I guess if it's an 8% operating margin, you know, maybe it's a, a 10% uh, markup on total costs or something like that. Um, they're very consistently profitable. Again, they make just enough to where it seems fair to to the Congress people who are overseeing all this stuff. And 14%, 15%, that's probably, you know, uh, in the second quartile or at the median or something for the S&P 500. So people would find that reasonable. And yet the valuation here, it's at a discount P.E., it's 7 times ebitda which if i look at the inverse is a 14% cash on cash return and then i'm going to get according to value line 9% growth that's a 23% return on capital and that's pretty good um and i think even if it's lower the risk adjusted return is better because i don't think there's much risk to this business um and i don't you know obviously know anything about this i'm just reading value line but undoubtedly, to put up these stable revenue growth numbers. They've got relationships. Um, They're uh, obviously getting better. They're introducing more people to their relationships. They're trying to create a a culture where SAIC is a go-to company for a whole host of things. And, um, you know, it looks like they've been pretty successful at doing that. Um, And so... uh, You know, obviously do some homework here. It would be important to find out who those individuals are. But undoubtedly, they're generals and admirals and things like that from the past who are now over here and have all these relationships at the Department of Defense and the CIA and all that and uh, are a trusted advisor and provider of systems software uh, to to those uh, entities. So those kinds of businesses tend to be pretty stable. And at this price, I think it's a pretty good deal. Uh, particularly during you know an uncertain economic environment, uh, this is going to be a much more stable situation at SAIC. Uh, what can I tell you here? Let's see. They're making a couple little sort of tuck-in acquisitions, I'm sure, to leverage their relationships. Uh, Their efforts to expand the operating margins are being thwarted, according to Line. But, you know, I don't need the margin to go up. It looks perfectly fine right here. Uh, Their win rate's been 85% over the last few years. Um, The stock's down a little. Evidently, their backlog has decreased by more than seven percent from last year that strikes me as just noise again I don't know best to go read the 10 Q or something um they have been buying stock so I like seeing that company knows companies that know when not to just blow money on stupid projects uh, are worthy of respect particularly if they buy stock back it you know helps the value per share of for shareholders so that's nice and uh you know, looks like a pretty well-run company at a pretty good value. SAIC, uh, ticker SAI. And again, don't know the page number. Um, best idea this week. That's a tough one. These all seem pretty decent, I think. Um, but I'm going to have to go with uh, Dun & Bradstreet, ticker DNB. And again, this has been Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. Check out all of our information at www.thevalueguys.com. And thanks for listening in, everybody. Have a good evening.